So let me ask you a question. Are you an atheist? Are you an atheist? Now, some of you in here might recoil or get upset at being asked such a question. What do you mean, am I an atheist? But before you answer this question, I want you to understand that there are multiple types. There are different types of atheists. The most obvious of which, the one that your mind most likely went right to when I asked the question, is the one you, most li- the, the one you hear about in Psalm 14.1. The one who says in his heart, there is no God. David, along with the rest of Scripture, refers to this type of atheist as a fool. And the biblical assessment of the fool's life is that they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. That is Psalm 14.1 and the description of this type of atheist. Now there may be some of you in here who are this type of atheist this morning, or someone listening online this morning who might very well be this type of atheist. And to you I say, turn from your sin, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. You will be given the most wonderful gift of God, a relationship, an eternal relationship with himself as his very own son or daughter. This is held out to you right now as a wonderful gift of God. However, the rigid denial of God's existence is, for most of us in this room, and probably for most of us listening online, not the type of atheism that you might suffer from this morning. There is another type of atheism that might, however, very well characterize you might very well characterize a number of us. And that is called practical atheism. Practical atheism. Now, what is practical atheism, you ask? It is when we say in our hearts that there is a God, and He's wonderful, and He's great. And we speak of our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in this God. We speak about our love for Jesus. We speak about our trust in Him. We speak about how we want to obey Him. But then we deny what we speak by the way we live our lives. We deny the Lord by our lifestyle as we seek to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth rather than treasures in heaven. We deny Him by our deeds when we profess to love Him and to serve Him when with... uh, when we profess to love him and serve him while languishing in and addicted to secret private sin that remains unrepented of. And as we will note this morning, we deny him in our attitudes and in our dispositions as we speak of trusting his good and wise provision for us, but then descend into undue concern with or worry over or anxious fear about the issues and the necessities of this temporal life. And it is is this worry and anxiety that is the subject of our text this morning. Jesus took the time to address this because worry is one of the most obvious markers of a practical atheism. Instead of trusting God, 
depending on the Lord, being at peace inside and outside because He is your Heavenly Father, because you know He cares for you. Sometimes we turn ourselves inside out, tossing and turning on our beds. We can even get bodily pains and experience mental breakdown and a host of other serious physical byproducts because we are anxious and worried. And Jesus here in this text teaches us that worry has absolutely no place in the life of one of God's children. Anxiety has no place in the life of one of God's children. And that instead, we should recognize that a full, hearty, abundant trust in the Lord will eliminate worry and anxiety from your life. And just know this, to the degree that you and I experience anxiety and you and I experience worry in our lives, we reveal a distrust in God's loving care for us. And more, what you worry about, what you are anxious over, what I worry about, reveals and displays the idols in our lives as well. What is it that you worry about? What is it that you are anxious over? Is it safety from a virus? Do you worry and get anxious over that rather than simply trusting God's good oversight and care for you? Then safety is an idol for you. Something that you are willing to distrust God for... Distrust God over because you're anxious about it? Do you worry about financial security? Rather than trusting in the Lord to care for and provide for your needs, are you willing to distrust Him by anxiety and worry? If so, then financial security on earth is an idol for you. The list could go on and on. The things that you, could, you and I can be worried about are endless. And while it is a good thing, as Jesus will teach, to be prudent and responsible in our care for such things, it is sinful to worry about them. So what you worry about in this life is an idol for you. Worry and anxiety is an indication that you believe peace and satisfaction and comfort in this life are contingent upon possessing that thing that you are anxious about. When all the while, when all the while... Peace and joy and satisfaction ought to be fully and completely found, searched for, located in God and in Him alone. And if that's you, you're not the only one who has suffered from this, just so you know. Such practical atheism characterized the Israelites in the desert when they constantly moaned and they constantly complained and they constantly worried about their basic necessities. You remember it, right, in the, in the, uh, during their wilderness, te- tri- wilderness journeys? They worried about what they would eat and what they would drink and to a lesser extent what they would wear. We see this worry and we see this anxiety almost immediately after God delivered the Israelites from the iron-handed grip of the Egyptians. 
after the Lord had revealed his great power in striking Egypt with plague after plague, after God had displayed his protective might and power for Israel by protecting them with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, after the Lord had parted an entire sea and brought them through that sea safely, after the Lord had dealt with the most fearsome army on the planet at that time, the Egyptian army, after everything they had witnessed, after all the care, after all the provision, after all the protection that God had shown them, it did not take long before the people grew anxious and worried. As though God had done all of that simply to lead them out into the wilderness so they could die. And so they worried and they grew anxious and they lacked trust in God concerning first what they would eat. And we see it in Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. It says this, When the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord, out of his abundant goodness, out of his immeasurable generosity, rained down bread from heaven. You remember that? He rained bread from heaven for his people, ensuring that this basic necessity of life, what they would eat, would actually be taken care of. And Moses made it clear. When you grumble and when you worry and when you're anxious about these things, it's not actually me, said Moses, that you're grumbling against. It's the Lord himself. And he made that clear in Exodus 16, verse 8, when he said, the Lord has heard your grumbling against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. When you're anxious and worried, it is against the Lord himself. And soon after this, very next chapter in the book of Exodus uh, instead of after the Lord had provided them food, they once again distrusted God's providing hand. This time they grumbled over what they would drink. We read that in Exodus chapter 17, verse 2. It says this, The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So again, they complained. And what did the Lord do? He provided water for them from the most impossible of sources, a, a rock. So once again, their basic necessities were covered by the Lord. And while we don't hear any grumbling about clothes, about what they wore... The Lord made it clear in the Old Testament a number of times that he took care of them in this regard as well. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, the Lord says this to Israel, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. And again, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he said, your clothing did not wear out on you and your food, your foot did not swell these 40 years. The Lord took care of them in the wilderness, what they would eat, what they would drink, what they would wear. And as the people returned to Jerusalem after their period of exile, 
The Levites led the people in a prayer of repentance as they all stood and confessed their sins and the sins of their fathers. And there we read a summary, a nice, tight summary of God's provision for them in the wilderness. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we read this. This is what they prayed. You, the Lord, in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. In other words, you are the God who has always provided for your children out of, genero- out of your generosity. You are the God who has always taken care of what his children would eat, what they would drink, and what they would wear. You are the God who truly does care for his children. And it's no coincidence, is it, that in our text this morning, Jesus chose these same three things. What you would eat, what you would drink, and what you would wear. As he calls his listeners back to the fact that God has already proven that he takes care of all of these things. Israel, we have been here before. In the wilderness, you worried about these things what you would eat. God took care of it, didn't he? What you would drink. God took care of that. What you would wear. God took care of that. But as is the case with most of us, we all too easily forget the past faithfulnesses of God in our life. We all too easily doubt God's ability or his commitment to providing for our needs. And instead of trusting, instead of praying, instead of casting our anxieties on him because we know that he cares for us, we begin languishing in worry and anxiety over those things. And so Jesus teaches the people on this day and reminds us in our own day the simple truth. Don't worry. Instead, put God first and trust in him to supply your needs. Don't worry. Trust in God and trust in Him to supply your needs. And if you look at verse 25, you will see that Jesus begins this section with the all-important therefore. You see that? Therefore. Meaning that what Jesus is about to teach is directly connected to what came before it. And last week, we looked at what came before it. And we learned that Jesus told the crowds that you must choose your master. You must choose which you will serve, either the Lord or earthly riches. And he taught us that we can either store up for ourselves treasures on earth or we can store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. The treasures on earth, however, will only last a short time as they are constantly under threat of corrosion, corruption, and thievery while treasures in heaven are held safely in the hands of God, beyond any corrosion and beyond any burglar. Which treasure will you choose, asked Christ? Which will you set your eye upon? To set our eye upon the Lord, uh, 
said Jesus in our text, is to have a good and healthy eye, meaning we live generously, using our resources to further the Lord's purpose while setting our eyes on earthly treasures, is to have a bad eye, a diseased eye, a sick eye. And that works itself out in our lives in stinginess and in greed and in self-centeredness. So is, is your eye good or is it bad? And so Christ made it clear, you cannot serve two masters. Choose who you will serve because no matter how crafty we think we are, no matter how much we think we can, we cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God with a good eye, laboring for treasures in heaven, and mammon or money with a bad eye, laboring and striving for treasures on earth. These two things are opposed to each other with different values and different goals and different outcomes for one's service. Serving God with the good eye leads to eternal life, entrance into the joy of your master, while serving mammon or money or earthly treasures leads to your eternal damnation and the terrible declaration of our Lord Jesus Christ on the last day, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels." And so grab your scales and weigh the options carefully. If you choose to serve God, then jump in wholeheartedly and give no thought to the other any longer. If you choose to love God, look forward. Look to Him and, and stop looking backwards in worry and anxiety over the accumulation of the earthly things that you say you've left behind. Worry and anxiety have no place among those who've cho chosen to serve God who've chosen to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven, who trust that the God who provided for his children in the wilderness is the same God who provides for his children today. Therefore, if in fact you have chosen to serve God, then comes the command. In verse 25, I tell you, do not be anxious. This is in the imperative Voice meaning it is a command given to us by Jesus. It is something he is commanding us to do. Jesus commands those who serve the Lord, do not be anxious. He'll do so three times in our text. You will see in verse 25, in verse 31, in verse 34, he reiterates this command. And in verse 25, he'll give four reasons. Verse 25 and forward, he'll give four reasons why we ought not to be anxious. And in verse 31 and 34, he'll give uh, one reason under each of those two reiterations of the command. So that's where we're going today. And the word in this context, anxiety here, means to worry, to experience undue concern over, to be burdened with fear about or weighed down by the object of your anxiety. And the command, this command to not be anxious, it's one that is uh, consistently referenced throughout the New Testament. For example... Jesus speaks about a day when his disciples will inevitably face the persecution of the world. When they deliver us over to the governors and the kings for the sole reason or for the specific fact that we love and trust and serve and cling to Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, 19, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. So don't be anxious. God will give you the words. 
And the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians wrote, Do not be anxious about anything, anything, but in everything, everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. The Apostle Peter also exhorted the readers of his letter to cast all your anxieties on him, that's on God, because he cares for you. And King David in the Old Testament in the Psalms, Psalm 55, said, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Meaning, he will never permit the righteous to meet with final disaster. And this is all because the entire witness of Scripture is this. God loves and cares for his children. Do you love Jesus this morning? Are you saved by grace through faith in Christ this morning? Then guess what? God loves you and he will care for you. Anxiety in all of its forms is a disobedience and a distrust of that truth. So what exactly did Jesus teach us not to be anxious about in our text in verse 25? Look at it. Your life. Do not be anxious about your life. Meaning, the totality of our lives. No aspect of the life of one who has chosen to serve God is fair game for anxiety or worry. And Jesus will go directly to the basic necessities of life. Those things that we think it might actually be okay to worry about because if we don't have them, we die. Right? Food and drink. You don't have that, you die. So we think, okay, those things that I'll die if I don't have, I could probably worry about those. And Jesus said, nope, do not worry. And he'll make an argument here from from the greater to the lesser. This is a common rabbinic argument. You'll see arguments from the greater to the lesser and arguments from the lesser to the greater repeated again and again throughout this text. So that just means this. Do not be anxious about the totality of your life. That's the greater thing. If that's the case, if Jesus says you don't don't worry about the totality of your life, then obviously we ought not to worry about the smaller things in life, the lesser things, what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will wear. If God has given you life, the greater thing, will he not also give to you the necessities required to sustain that life, the lesser thing? This is who God is. For the number of days God has you on earth, he will care for you. And this is what Jesus is referring to when he first states the command, do not be anxious, and then gives the first reason for that command in verse 25, saying, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You see that? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The idea is, Will the Lord, who has given us the breath of life, who gives each and every one of us every breath that we draw over and over and over and over again, will he not also, with that breath, provide us the bread that we need to live? We saw it in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. When he secured the greater thing, freedom from enslavement, would he not also provide them with the lesser things, food, water, and clothes? Of course he would. 
And the same principle is declared and displayed even in an even greater way in the New Testament, as Pastor Robert brought up Romans chapter 1 in his prayer. Romans 8, 31 to 32 says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, the idea here is God has already accomplished the greater thing, the greatest thing. His very own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, by his perfect life, secured our righteousness and by his atoning death, paid the penalty for our sins. A reality that anyone can access by repenting of your sin and believing in Jesus for salvation. And if God has already given us this greater thing, how will he not also graciously give to us all other things? Because everything else is lesser. How can we worry about... How can we worry that the God who went to such great lengths to deliver us would subsequently leave us starving, thirsty, and naked in the wilderness? Worry and anxiety is an unbelief of this most wonderful characteristic of our God that he is graciously committed to providing for his children while they live on earth. So that's the first reason. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. The second reason given for the first command, do not be anxious, is found in verse 26. The second reason why anxiety is inconsistent with trusting the Lord comes from an example in nature. As Jesus said in verse 26, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. So in the first reason... Uh, that Jesus gave us to avoid worry. He used an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has already given you the great thing, then you can trust him to provide the lesser things like clothing. But here Jesus switches it up a little bit. And he uses an argument from lesser to greater. If God cares this much for this lesser thing, and how much will he not care? How much will he care for the even greater thing? And so he starts with the birds. Right? Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 31, fear not, for you are worth more than many sparrows, meaning you, as a human being, are worth more than birds. But look at how much God cares for the birds. He says in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. Consider them. Ponder them. They have a lot to teach you. They are not industrious and forward-thinking like we are. You see that? They don't sow, meaning they don't plow a field and then plant seeds in the field and then fertilize that field and water the field to help the food grow for their future use. Neither do they reap. You see that in verse 26? They also don't reap, meaning they don't grab the sickle or in our case, in our modern day, the tractor and harvest all the food that they have grown. Nor do they gather into barns. That's the next phrase, right? They don't collect the harvest and bring it into a storehouse for safekeeping. They don't stockpile food and accumulate it so that they can have a long-term supply of food. They don't do this. And yet, look at what the text says, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. See, God's good care and provision extends even to the birds. They live day by day on what God gives them. And the psalmists will praise the Lord for this reality. They will praise the Lord for his good supply of the animal kingdom in general. You see it in Psalm 104. It says this, 
O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. In Psalm 147, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. It's not just the birds, but it's all the beasts of the earth that are fed by the Lord. And none of them sow and reap. And as you consider this, as you look at it, as you study it, Jesus reminds us of another truth in verse 26, the last line of verse 26. Are you not of more value than they? Aren't you worth more in God's eyes than the birds? Are you son or daughter of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is the only way to become a son or a daughter of God? Are you not more valuable in God's sight? Are you not superior to, are you not of greater worth than the birds? And the answer to that question is, yes, yes you are. We live in a culture that tries to uh, make uh, humanity as equal or lesser than the animals in some ways, but Jesus makes it clear, humanity is of greater value. You are the greater thing. And if God so takes care of the lesser thing, the birds, how much more then will he take care of you who are worth more to him than those birds? The point is summed up nicely by an old theologian named Pasquier Canel who said, The providence of God feeds the birds without their own labor, though he be not their father. We never knew an earthly father to take care of his fowls or his birds and neglect his children. And shall we fear this from our heavenly father? Or in more modern English, have you ever known a good father to spend all his time feeding the birds in his backyard while abandoning his own children? Would you, could you, therefore, ever think such a thing about your heavenly father? Now, just, a, just as an aside, this text is not a permission for or an encouragement to laziness. Scripture condemns laziness in all of its forms. The most vivid picture are the admonishments given in Proverbs 23. It says this, The sluggard, that's the way the ESV translates lazy person, the sluggard says, There is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. The idea is that all they do is yell, but they're too lazy to flee. It goes on, as the door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. This is a reprimand for anyone who sleeps too much, who continually turns on their bed rather than getting out there and working. It goes on, the sluggard buries his... <laughs> this is a great one. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. <laughs> now that's lazy. And finally, and you've probably all known these peak types, and if you don't know anyone like this, then chances are this is you. <laughs> the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Meaning, the sluggard is well capable of convincing himself that he's justified in and by his laziness, thinking his own reasons are weightier than all of the wise people around him who labor, get up, and go out to work. 
So, back to our text. While the birds don't work in the sense of farming, they are responsibly industrious in the sense that they fly around and search for food. They are diligent and persistent in their foraging for food, but they don't worry. That's the key. They're not anxious about where it will come from. This text is not a critique of good, honest, hard work. We can and we ought to work to the best of our abilities, all the while trusting and knowing that God is the ultimate provider. This text is not rebuking the good, honest, hard worker. This text is rebuking the anxious and worried worker. This text is also not permission to sit around and do nothing and wait on God to bring food right to you. Some tend to think that, right? While God may very well supply you as you wait on Him while not diligently using any of your gifts, the means or the skills God has given you is good, industrious, hard work. You see, birds, they're constantly flying around, right? They're constantly looking for God's provision. And when they find it, they eat it. Kind of reminds me of that old story. It's not a joke this time. It's just a story about the man on the rooftop of his house as a flood came to the city. This flood ravaged his town, and he prayed to the Lord, Lord, I need your rescue, and I need your help. And as he prayed, a boat came motoring by, and the driver asked, Hey, hey, you want to get in? I'll take you to the land. And the man on the roof said, No thanks, I'm waiting on the Lord to rescue me. Don't worry about me. And after that, a helicopter came, looking for stranded people, and he threw down a ladder to the man on the roof and said, Come on up the ladder, we'll take you to dry land. And the man said, No thank you, I'm waiting on the Lord to deliver me. Don't worry about me. And eventually the water levels rose and rose and rose, and the man on the roof ended up drowning. And as he entered into the presence of the Lord, he said, Where were you? Why didn't you rescue me? I am a firm and faithful believer. You promised in your word to save me. And the Lord looked at the man and said, I did. I sent you a boat. I sent you a helicopter. What more did you want? We take what the Lord gives. So the first reason is not life more than food the body more than clothing the second reason is an example from nature that you are worth more than the birds and yet god cares for the birds the third reason is in verse 27 and the third reason is that worry is completely pointless and fruitless worry adds absolutely no benefit to your life look at what he says in verse 27 and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of your life. Some of your translations might say uh, cubit to your height. Both of them end up meaning the same thing. It adds nothing to you. Worry is a futile endeavor. It doesn't change any of the situations you find yourself in, does it? Anxiety doesn't lengthen the duration of your life, does it? But it can and most definitely does subtract from the quality of your life, right? If our Heavenly Father has already planned the number of our days, as David declared in Psalm 139, in your book there were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, why worry about anything? We can drive ourselves to great physical, emotional, and mental distress in our anxieties, can't we? And to what end? What does it accomplish? 
What positive benefit does it bring to you? It doesn't change anything. We can be beside ourselves worrying about an endless number of things. We can be beside ourselves worrying about a virus. We can be worried about rabies. We can be worried about animal attacks or robberies or floods, pollution. We could be worried that a meteor might plummet to the earth. Movies love to make that storyline over and over and over again. Meteors might plummet to the earth. Buildings that you're in might collapse. Car that you're driving might crash. Other people's opinions of you might cause you anxiety. And the list could go on and on and on. But worrying about any of them is a pointless and fruitless endeavor that adds nothing to your life. So then why worry? Why be anxious? Jesus moves on to the fourth reason, and it is again another consideration from nature, another argument from lesser to greater. He says this in verse 28 to 29. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So again, we start off with the word consider, meaning observe, watch closely so as to learn a lesson here. Because the smaller things of the world, the birds and the flowers, if we take the time to learn what God is revealing in and by them, that is a fruitful endeavor for us. So again, this is an argument from lesser to greater. If God clothes clothes the lilies or the grass of the field, which is the lesser thing, will he not also clothe you, the greater thing? See, the lilies of the field, they increase in size, but they don't, look at verse 28, they don't toil Toil here means labor or work until they're tired for their growth. Nor do they spin, in verse 28, right? Spin, meaning they don't take fibers and spin them up into threads by which they make themselves a nice suit or clothes out of them. They, like the birds, don't accumulate. They don't lay up barns filled with clothing. And yet, Not even King Solomon in all of his glory, in all of his wealth, all of his riches, all of his fame, all of his status, even as he wore the most radiant and beautiful of clothing. You see, the riches of Solomon, if you go back and you read 1 Kings and you read 2 Chronicles 9, you read about the riches and the status and the wealth of Solomon, it was almost beyond belief. It was literally enough to take away the queen of Sheba's breath. When she saw it, 2 Chronicles 9 tells us, when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants and their clothing, his cupbearers and their clothing, there was no more breath in her. And Solomon's clothing, all of the clothes Solomon wore, the scripture tells us, were gifts to him from the other kings of the earth. As they sought an audience with him to hear the wisdom, they would bring him gifts, one of which, in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 24, is garments. And yet, even with all of this, with riches that would take your breath away, with clothing so rich and fine, even on the servants and the cupbearers, none of those 
measure up to the lily in the field. The lilies of the field are adorned and wrapped in an even more beautiful covering than anything Solomon had in his closet. The flowers of the field, those flowers that any passerby could pick, put in a vase for a time, look at them, and then use to fuel and light their stove. See, God dresses the flowers of the field better than any of us in here can dress ourselves. So move over, Versace. Move over, Coors. Move over, Mr. Loren. I want to consider the lilies, not your lesser designs. And all of this to say, in verse 30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, or if this is the way that God clothes the grass that's in the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, if our God is this concerned to clothe the short-lived flowers or the grass that is here one day and gone the next, how much more? You should always look for those words, how much more? It's a common argument. How much more then will he be concerned to provide for the needs of his children? If God cares this much for the lesser things, the grass and the flowers, how much more do you think he cares for the greater thing, you, his child? And you notice Jesus ended this section with the phrase, O you of little faith, indicating that anxiety and worry is actually a deficiency of our faith, a sign of unbelief, a practical atheism of the heart. So then the question is to you is, how do you respond to the signs of trouble or need in your life? If the danger of poverty, the danger of health scares, or anything presents itself, is your response one of strong faith and trust in the provision and tender care of the Lord? Or is it unbelief in the form of worry and anxiety? Unbelief is the root of all of our anxiety. Unbelief is the root of all of our worry. Unbelief is actually the root of every single sin we commit. When we move into the area, in the direction of sin, we for that time believe that that sin that we want is greater and more fruitful than the Lord himself. And so we choose it over him. So when you are anxious and when you are worrying, you are distrusting God. You are declaring that our God cannot be trusted May that never be. If you believe in Christ for salvation and forgiveness of your sin, the greater thing, how then can you and I worry about the lesser things like food and water and clothing? Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the eyes and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. And his grace, as the old song says. So that's the first command with the four reasons. And then in verse 31, Jesus reiterates the command once again. See that in verse 31? Saying, therefore, in light of everything you have just read, therefore, do not be anxious. There it is again. The second time he reiterates this command. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Again, Jesus is bringing their mind back to the fact that we have been here before. What shall you eat? You and I, as believers sitting on this side of history, we know that Jesus 
is the bread of heaven, who provides the greater thing, our salvation, who, and also provides physical bread for his disciples. He did it with manna in the wilderness. He did it for you and your salvation. He will do it for you in your life right now. Some might say, what shall we drink? Jesus revealed to us that he is the living water. He is the one who provides for us refreshment for our souls as we come to him by grace through faith. He has provided the greater thing. He also shows that he provided the lesser thing when he provided for Israel water in the wilderness. He did it for them from a rock. He can do it for you now. And Jesus clothes us with his righteousness, with his perfect life when we call upon him in faith. We can do that because he lived a perfect righteous life that was required to secure our righteousness. And he gives us this clothing of spiritual righteousness in God's sight. And if he has done that, the greater thing, he will provide for us the smaller thing, the lesser thing, our physical clothing. So don't run around anxiously for these things. We as God's people, and here is the reason he says it the second time, we as God's people must be different than the world in this regard. We must be different than the world. See that in verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. See, we act like unbelievers when we worry. Because we're imitating, we are imitating those who possess no faith. We act like Gentiles. Gentiles in this context means idolaters, those who don't serve, those who don't follow, those who don't know or believe in the God of Israel and his son Jesus. They seek after these things with anxiety. And as we worry, we imitate them. And we must be different. See, the pagans of Jesus' day, they served God. The ones that Jesus is referring to here, they served gods that never showed any rhyme or reason for their benevolence. It all depended on that God's mood for the day. And so they ran around anxious all the time, anxious over their daily provisions, anxious over their food, anxious over their water, water wondering if on this day the gods were in a good mood, ready to give, or in a bad mood, ready to kill them. This is not so for us. This is not so for those who serve Jesus Christ. In Christ, when you believe in him, the wrath of God is appeased and his disposition towards us turns from being enemy to being our father. And our father is always benevolent with us. Our father is always kind to us. Our father is always generous to his children. And so, verse 33 Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Here is your insurance plan right here. This is it. This is the guarantee of God. For the duration of your days on earth, as you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things, your basic necessities, will be added to you. Seek God's kingdom. Look for it. Prioritize it above everything else. Don't be like unbelievers who are worrying about everything. Instead, seek God first. His kingdom, his righteousness, labor to obey his will and his word, strive to be like Christ in holiness, knowing that as we are nearer to the Lord, as we are closer to him, guess what happens at the same time? We grow more content. And as we grow closer to the Lord, we grow in our assurance of his care. 
So listen, are you worrying? Are you anxious? That is a sign of the weakness of your faith. Because as you move closer to the Lord, that anxiety and that worry dissipates as you grow in contentment and assurance of the God who has revealed himself to be your heavenly Father who cares for you. All these things will be added to you. Water, clothes, basic needs. Now, just as an aside again, do not confuse the excesses of our culture, the rampant materialism of our culture with your needs, okay? Needs and materialistic wants are two separate things. And anyways, seeking God first is greater than any of the riches of the world anyway. And finally, in verse 34, Jesus reiterates the command again for a third time, saying, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Just uh, when you're reading scripture and you see something repeated three times, that means that the speaker or the author really wants you to see it. They really want you to grasp what is being said. They really want you to know this information. And what is it that Jesus reiterates three times? Do not be anxious. And so for the third time, Jesus commands us. And the reason given here in verse 34, tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Therefore, if you believe all of this, that God does, can, and will provide for his children's needs, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't carry the anxieties of a day that hasn't even come yet. The only thing you do by being anxious for tomorrow and worrying about tomorrow is cripple yourself in the now. Reduce your effectiveness today. Tomorrow has its own troubles. Each day has enough troubles of its own, am I right? There are enough things to think about today And that's enough for today. You might say, well, that's difficult because if I don't worry about tomorrow, then things might not get done or I might not have sufficient provisions. Or Listen, God gives you the grace, gives you the mercy, and he gives you the provision sufficient for each day. Now, as we read in Lamentations... If there were anyone, by the way, who could justly worry about tomorrow, it's the prophet Jeremiah, who watched as his nation, as his people were carried off into exile and had no clue what that would look like. And yet, in one of the most somber books in the entire Bible, the book of Lamentations, we see this bright spot in chapter 3. And it's something that we can all take with us today says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So as we take each day as it comes, the Bible gives us the promise that the mercies of the Lord to deal with the issues of that day are given to us freshly every morning. So in closing, three times in our text, Jesus commands his people, do not be anxious. 
And he gives us a number of reasons for, those, for that command. First, God gave us life. Will he not also then, therefore, give us the necessities to sustain that life? Yes. Two, God, if God cares for the birds and you are worth more than the birds, will he not, therefore, also in greater measure care for you? The answer is yes. Three, worry adds nothing to your life. You can't add any time or height. You can't add even the smallest benefit to your life by worrying, so why do it? The answer is don't do it. Fourth reason, God clothes the lilies of the field, and they are merely temporary. Here today, thrown in the oven to stoke the fire tomorrow. And if he cares so much for the flowers, will he not care even more for you? And the answer is yes. Yes. The fifth reason is that worry and anxiety is the domain of godless Gentiles. By worrying, you act more like the godless than the godly. And may it never be that that is us. Instead, we trust God. We trust our Father in heaven. He knows what you need and He is more than happy to give it to you. So seek Him first in all things. And the sixth and final reason is, don't be anxious about tomorrow. It hasn't even come yet. The mercies of God that are new every day. The mercies of God are new every day, and so while each day has its troubles, we serve a God who provides us with all we need with every new day. So, my brothers and sisters, I pray this morning that the words of our Lord land on you and that they are a an an exhortation to stop worrying, but also an encouragement that you may trust in your heavenly Father who loves you dearly. May he be glorified in and by your life. Father, we give you praise. We give you honor. We love you. We thank you and we praise you that you reveal yourself to us in Scripture over and over and over again as the God who loves and cares for us, his children. So, Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would eliminate anxiety and you would eliminate worry from our lives as we grow ever closer to you, knowing that the closer we get to you, the less room there are for things like worry and anxiety over the, the, uh, the treasures of the world. And I pray that we would be encouraged this day, encouraged by the truth that you are our Heavenly Father and you love us. There is no greater love, there is no greater reality than the fact that we are worth something to you. We are valuable to you. So we thank you for the care and the provision that you've given us all the days of our life up until this one. And we praise you and we trust you for the care and provision of the rest of our days that we have, that you've given us on earth until we go. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.